0: Chapter Four Part One of the Making of a Nation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Finkberg. The Making of a Nation The Beginning of Israel's History by Charles Foster Kent. Chapter Four Part one Study four The Survival of the Fittest The Story of the Great Flood Genesis chapter six to eight Parallel Readings Historical Bible Volume one Pages fifty two to sixty five Darwin Origin of the Species Wallace Darwinism three William Dawson Modern Ideas of Evolution. Article Evolution in Leading Encyclopedias When Jehovah saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every purpose in the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, it was a source of regret that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Therefore Jehovah said, I will destroy from the face of the ground man whom I have created, for I regret that I have made mankind. Then Jehovah said to Noah, Enter thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee I have found righteous before me in this generation. Then Jehovah destroyed everything that existed upon the face of the earth, both man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heaven, so that they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only was left, and they who were with him in the ark. Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 to 8, chapter 7 verses 1, 5, and 23, historical Bible. And without faith it is impossible to be well pleasing with God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that seek after him. By faith, Noah being warned of God concerning things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear prepared an ark to the saving of his house, through which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 6 and 7. Rare is the man who can look back over his life and not confess, at least to himself, that the things which have made him most a man are the very things from which he tried with all his soul to escape. If we would attain happiness, we must first attain helpfulness, but stay no age was e'er degenerate unless men held it at too cheap a rate for in our likeness still we shape our fate. Lowell one the two biblical accounts of the flood, careful readers of Genesis chapter six to nine. Have long recognized certain difficulties in interpreting the narrative as it now stands. Thus, for example, in chapter 6, verse 20, Noah is commanded to take into the ark two of every kind of beast and bird, but in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, he is commanded to take in seven of all the clean beasts and birds. According to chapter 7, verses 4 and 12, the flood came as the result of a forty days' rain. But according to chapter 7, verse 11, it was because the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. Again according to chapter 7, 17, the flood continued on the earth forty days, while according to chapter 7, verse 24, its duration was a hundred and fifty days. These fundamental variations, and the presence of duplicate versions of the same incidents point, some writers think to two originally distinct accounts of the flood which have been closely woven together by the final editor of the book of Genesis. When these two accounts are disentangled, they are each practically complete and apparently represent variant versions of the same flood story. See Historical Bible, Volume 1, pages 53-56 to for these two parallel accounts. The one known as the Prophetic Version was written, these writers believe, about 650 BC. It has the flowing, vivid, picturesque literary style, and the point of view of the Prophetic Teacher. In this account the number seven prevails. Seven of each clean beast and bird are taken into the ark to provide food for Noah and his family. Seven days the waters rose, and at intervals of seven days he sent out a raven and a dove. The flood from its beginning to the time when Noah disembarked continued sixty-eight days. At the end, when he had determined by sending out birds that the waters had subsided, he went forth from the ark, and reared an altar, and offered sacrifice to Jehovah of every clean beast and bird. The other and more detailed account is apparently the sequel of the late priestly narratives found in Genesis 1 and 5. The style is that of a legal writer, formal, exact, and repetitious. In this account only two of each kind of beast and bird are taken into the ark. The flood lasts for over a year and is universal, covering even the tops of the highest mountains. No animals are sacrificed, for according to the priestly writer, this custom was first instituted by Moses. When the flood subsides, however, A covenant is concluded, and is sealed by the rainbow, in accordance with which man's commission to rule over all other living things is renewed, and divine permission is given to each to eat the flesh of animals, provided only that men carefully abstain from eating the blood. This later account is dated by this group of modern biblical scholars about 400 B.C. 2. The Corresponding Babylonian Flood Stories. Closely parallel to these two variant biblical accounts of the flood are the two Babylonian versions, which have fortunately been almost wholly recovered. The older Babylonian account is found in the eleventh tablet of the Gilgamesh epic, which comes from the library of Ashur-banipal. This great conqueror lived contemporaneously with Manasseh, during whose reign Assyrian influence was paramount in the kingdom of Judah. In his quest for healing and immortality, Gilgamesh reached the abode of the Babylonian hero of the flood. In response to Gilgamesh's question as to how he, a mortal, attained immortality, the Babylonian Noah recounts the story of the flood. It was brought about by the Babylonian gods in order to destroy the city of Shuripak, situated on the banks of the Euphrates, the god Ea. Gave the warning to his worshipper, the hero of the flood, and commanded him, Construct a house, build a ship, leave goods, look after life, forsake possessions, and save life. Cause all kinds of living things to go up into the ship. The ship which thou shalt build, exact shall be its dimensions. Its breadth shall equal its length. On the great deep launch it. I understand, and said to Ea. My Lord, behold, my Lord, what Thou hast commanded, I have reverently received, and will carry out." A detailed account then follows of the building of the Ark. Its dimensions were one hundred and twenty cubits in each direction. It was built in six stories, each of which was divided into nine parts. Plentiful provisions were next carried on board, and a great feast was held to commemorate the completion of the Ark. After carrying on board his treasures of silver and gold, he adds, all the living creatures of all kinds I loaded on it. I brought on board my family and household, cattle of the field, beasts of the field, the craftsmen, all of them I brought on board. In the evening, at the command of the god Shamash, the rains began to descend. Then the Babylonian Noah entered the ship, closed the door, and entrusted the great house with its contents to the captain. The description of the tempest that follows is exceedingly vivid and picturesque. When the first light of dawn shone forth, there rose from the horizon a dark cloud within which Adad thundered. Nabu and Marduk marched at the front. The heralds passed over mountains and land. Nergal tore out the ship's mast. Ninib advanced following up the attack. The spirits of earth raised torches, with their sheen they lighted up the world. Adad's tempest reached to heaven, and all light was changed to darkness. So great was the havoc wrought by the storm, that the gods bowed down, sat there weeping, close pressed together were their lips. For six days and nights the storm raged, but on the seventh day it subsided, and the flood began to abate. Of the race of mortals, however. Every voice was hushed. At last the ship approached the mountain Nizir, which lay on the northern horizon, as viewed from the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Here the ship grounded, then. When the seventh day arrived, I sent forth a dove and let it loose. The dove went forth, but came back. Because it found no resting place, it returned. Then I sent a swallow, but it came back. Because it found no resting place, it returned. Then I sent forth a raven and let it loose. The raven went forth and saw that the waters had decreased. It fed, it waded, it croaked, but did not return. Then I sent forth everything, in all directions, and offered a sacrifice. I made an offering of incense on the highest peak of the mountain. Seven and seven bowls I placed there, and over them I poured out calamus, cedarwood, and fragrant herbs. The gods inhaled the odor, the gods inhaled the sweet odor, the gods gathered like flies above the sacrifice. At the intercession of Ea, the Babylonian Noah and his wife were granted immortality and permitted to dwell in the distance at the confluence of the streams. A later version of the same Babylonian flood story is quoted by Eusebius, from the writings of the Chaldean priest Berossus, who lived about the 4th century BC. According to this version, the god Cronos appeared in a dream to Zisuthros, the hero, who like Noah in the priestly account, was the last of the ten ancient Babylonian kings. At the command of the god, he built a great ship, fifteen stadia long and two in width. Into this he took not only his family and provisions, but quadrupeds and birds of all kinds. When the flood began to recede, he sent out a bird, which quickly returned. After a few days he sent forth another bird, which returned with mud on its feet. When the third bird failed to return, he took off the cover of the ship, and found that it had stranded on a mountain of Armenia. The mountain in the biblical account is identified with Mount Ararat disembarking, the Babylonian Noah kissed the earth, and after building an altar, offered a sacrifice to the gods. Thus the variation between the older and later Babylonian accounts of the flood correspond in general to those that have been already noted in the Biblical versions. Which Biblical account does the earliest Babylonian narrative resemble most closely? In what detail do they agree? Are these coincidences merely accidental, or do they point possibly to a common tradition? How far do the later Biblical and Babylonian accounts agree? What is the significance of these points of agreement? 3. History of the Biblical Flood Stories On the basis of the preceding comparisons, some writers attempt to trace tentatively the history of the flood tradition current among the peoples of southwestern Asia. A fragment of the Babylonian flood story coming from at least as early as 2000 B.C. has recently been discovered. The probability is that the tradition goes back to the earliest beginnings of Babylonian history. The setting of the biblical account of the flood is also the Tigris-Euphrates Valley rather than Palestine. The description of the construction of the ark in Genesis 6, verses 14 to 16, is not only closely parallel to that found in the Babylonian account, but the method, the smearing of the ark within and without with bitumen, is peculiar to the Tigris-Euphrates valley. Many scholars believe, therefore, that Babylonia was the original home of the biblical flood story. Its exact origin, however, is not so certain. Many of its details were doubtless suggested by the annual floods and fogs which inundate the famous valley, and recall the primeval chaos so vividly pictured in the corresponding Babylonian story of the creation. It may have been based on the remembrances of a great local inundation, possibly due to the subsidence of great areas of land. In the earliest Hebrew records there is no trace of this tradition although it may have been known to the Aramean ancestors of the Hebrews. The literary evidence, however, suggests that it was first brought to Palestine by the Assyrians, during the reactionary reign of Manasseh, Assyrian customs and Babylonian ideas which these conquerors had inherited inundated Judah. Even in the temple at Jerusalem, the Babylonian gods, the host of heaven, were worshipped by certain of the Hebrews. The few literary inscriptions which come from this period, those found in the mound at Giza, are written in the Assyrian script, and contain the names of Assyrian officials. Later, when the Jewish exiles were carried to Babylonia, they naturally came into contact again with the Babylonian account of the flood, but in its later form, as the comparisons already instituted clearly indicate. It is thus possible, these scholars believe. To trace in outline at least the literary history of the Semitic flood story in its various transformations through a period of nearly two thousand years. End of chapter 4. Part 1